this here was med device. This could potentially take five years, 10 years, 15 years. And the, we had to find a approach to build our business that was not reliant on fundraising cycles because fundraising cycles are super fickle things. You can never control them. Uh, I've raised a quarter of a billion dollars in my career. And, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a weak moment, I might say it was my good looks that made it happen. Um, but <laughs> that'd be lying outright. It, most of the time, it was just good luck. It was just great luck and, and timing. So keeping that in mind, if you can't really plan for it all, then you've got to make sure you can stand on your own two feet. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Marcus Gerhardt, the co-founder and CEO of BlackRock Neurotech, a company he started back in 2008. BlackRock's Move Again Brain Computer Interface, or BCI system, is a breakthrough medical device that uses brain implants to allow immobile patients to control electronic devices, wheelchairs, or prosthetics with their minds. Here are a few of the key learnings uh, that we discuss in this interview with Marcus. First, venture capital funding isn't the only path forward for medtech companies. Marcus successfully applied an innovative model for raising funds that leveraged current technologies to finance the lengthy research and development period BlackRock needed. Second, cultivating community is a worthwhile priority. Forming authentic and meaningful connections with researchers in the neuroscience space helped BlackRock become a major player in the industry. Third, regulatory bodies have important responsibilities within the chain of production for medical technology. Embracing the requirements and working with, not against these agencies is crucial. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, since you're listening to MedSider, you're probably aware of how expensive it is to run clinical trials. Anyone who spent time in the medtech space knows that you typically need to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars, oftentimes millions, towards clinical research. But it doesn't have to be that way. And here's why. Proofpilot is a new kind of hybrid clinical trial platform that enables you to run decentralized studies at costs that are 40 to 80% below traditional approaches. This is how they do it. First, you can easily design a trial in the Proofpilot Visual Protocol Designer using their extensive library of templates. Next, you can launch those trials to participants and virtual staff without any technical development. Skip the integration of disconnected providers because Proofpilot pulls it all together seamlessly. For example, you can recruit, consent, and retain participants, then schedule, remind, and collect data, often with minimal manual labor, manage site data in real time, query adverse events quickly, and review data and preliminary analysis within hours, all in one compliant platform. Get up and running quickly with an annual license fee and launch as many trials as you like with an unlimited number of participants. To get started, visit MedSiderRadio.com forward slash ProofPilot. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash ProofPilot. For the MedSider audience, with an annual contract, ProofPilot will provide IRB approval for your first study at no cost. Some exclusions apply, so visit MedSiderRadio.com forward slash ProofPilot to learn more. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a Medsider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, 
prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful MedTech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to MedSider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Marcus, welcome to uh, MedSider Radio. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I think it'll be a fun discussion. Let's start, uh, but let, be, before we uh, go too far into kind of like the the, the major lessons learned, you know, um, throughout your career, as well as uh, building up BlackRock, let's talk a little bit about your personal background first, and then um, hopefully that will lead into kind of a little bit more of an overview for uh, for BlackRock's, uh, BlackRock's technologies and, and kind of your overarching business model. Yeah, sounds good. What would you like to know? <laughs> right, so, so like, let, let's not spend, you know, 10 to 15 uh, minutes, like going through each and every like move you've made throughout your career, but like, give us like the, you know, the, the elevator pitch and, you know, why, uh, the, the why behind, uh, behind when and, and how you started BlackRock. Yeah, it, look, I, an unlikely uh, background in terms of training, because uh, in essence, I focused on international politics and, and modern history. So an arts guy. <laughs> and then you kind of wonder what's an arts guy doing trying to run a neuroscience company. And uh, really, I don't have a great answer for you on it, except that my passions uh, change a little bit over time. But also that today I wouldn't have wanted any other degree to help me out do the job I have to do which is, in fact, not to understand neuroscience better than the geniuses I have around me. And there's many of them. I have more double and triple PhDs in this company than I can shake a stick at. But my primary role is to motivate, is to communicate, is to identify new ways of doing things, of facilitating and empowering the disruption that we are pushing for. And so once I had gone through two or three degrees, I found my calling having joined a startup company straight out of Oxford University. I had considered a PhD, but uh, uh, moved into a company in the dot-com era and set up a business with, I don't know, 150, 200 people within nine months. Uh, My first three days uh, incorporated four hours of sleep, the writing of a business plan, and at the end of the day, $20 million raised. So the most (laughs) effective I've ever been. Since then, it's gone continuously downhill (laughs) in terms of productivity and effectiveness. Uh, But I found my calling, which was to create ventures. And what I, the the red thread that has spun through all of them is usually technology or disruptiveness. Um, So I've been part now of uh, 14 or 15 ventures. And uh, the first one was an e-commerce platform, the very first one of its kind in the world. And since then, various technology solutions, but even non-technology approaches. uh, So very frontier asset management uh, plays, things like that, always disrupting, always looking for a change of the status quo. That was kind of the red thread. And what I've appreciated about creating ventures is driving a vision and a mission, bringing in talented people that share parts of that vision, making it theirs, and then seeing them own that and drive that towards success. Uh, I find it enormously rewarding. And whenever that's worked out really well, it's just uh, there's nothing better you can be doing, at least uh, from my perspective. But as it relates to BlackRock, the story goes uh, even further back, uh, meeting my co-founder at boarding school. So this venture has been an endurance race of the the longest kind (laughs) in many ways. 
Uh, we were just 16. I asked him what he wanted to do in life. And he responded like this and said, I want to create the link between bionic and artificial limb. Hmm. I was, I mean, I was blown away. I, I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. And this guy aged 16 knew it. And then he builds his entire career to achieve that. Hmm. And so we stayed in touch, became good friends. And uh, he also started a company out of university uh, in, in sort of sensor pressure technology, servicing Formula One cars. And then he calls me in 2007 and says, hey, I want to start a business in, in med device and neurotech. And uh, I couldn't really say no. So uh, <laughs> that kickstarted BlackRock in 2008. Got it. Okay. So BlackRock, I mean, the, the, the early days of BlackRock date back to that time frame. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize it was, uh, it was that, that long ago. Of course, we're recording this uh, for those listening here in late, uh, late 2021. But that that that's an awesome awesome story. When when he um when he told you he wanted to do something in medtech, was that your first foray in in, in healthcare, or had you done uh, previous previous ventures no, in the space? First foray in healthcare, and I listened to him. I kind of knew I was going to be involved because, again, going back so many years and being impressed by his visionary approach. But obviously, you know, I did my due diligence, so I stepped away. I was living in London at the time, started researching the medtech uh, sector. And we had another follow-up call a, a week later, and I told him he was out of his mind. I had researched this, and it was the worst performing VC sector of all time. I could count more companies that had failed than had succeeded, and I just I, I told him he was crazy. But uh, both of us love challenges, and he knew that of me too. So he said, well, how do we do it? Um, don't tell me we can't do it. How do we do it? So I stepped away another uh, a bit of time and thought about that. That's where we came up with a slightly different approach. And I took some guidance from medtech companies that have been successful in Germany and France in the post-war uh, period. Uh, when you look at that environment, very few of them had received any kind of VC funding. They were all entrepreneur-run, uh, family-run businesses, super successful. Brand Melzung is, is just one to think about. Escalap, uh, these kind of firms, Roche all run by families, all run by extremely stubborn individuals. And I knew Florian can be very stubborn and I can be very stubborn. I thought, okay, maybe we're onto something. Um, and I just looked at that and thought, okay, this is the difference to most of the technology I'd worked on before. Those had quick turnarounds. This here was med device. This could potentially take five years, 10 years, 15 years. And we had to find a approach to build our business that was not reliant on fundraising cycles because fundraising cycles are super fickle things. You can never control them. Uh, I've raised a quarter of a billion dollars in my career. And, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a weak moment, I might say it was my good looks that made it happen. Um, but <laughs> that'd be lying outright. It, most of the time it was just good luck. It was just great luck and, and timing. So keeping that in mind, if you can't really plan for it all, then you've got to make sure you can stand on your own two feet. That was, that was my conclusion. So, um, you can't just, you know, like a software, build it for six months. If it doesn't work out, well, then you move on to the next software, right? Here in MedDevice, an engineer who's worked on it for eight years is what is fundamentally valuable. And if you don't fund it properly, what, you close it down, it's gone. It's gone. There is no way to resuscitate that afterwards. So um, the, the idea I came to Florian with was to say, listen, instead of doing the traditional VC kind of approach, let's draw on our private uh, investors and, and network and start a company that will immediately acquire assets and take on something that already exists and drive revenue, we're going to suggest profitability within three years to our investors. And that's the point where he said, you're crazy. <laughs> Where's the track record for that? And I said, look, we know how to execute. Let's find something 
that we can acquire and turn it around and we build on top of that. We put your IP on top of that and then we'll see where that takes us and we'll raise funds for it. In the end, it worked out better than we could have hoped because we started the company in 2008 and we were profitable in nine months. Hmm. Um, now, I had suggested this plan also because I hoped that Florian would be off my back for another three months. I was closing out another venture um, <laughs> and I gave him this task. And Florian being Florian, he was back in like three days. Three days later, he calls me and said, I found the asset. I'm like, no, you have not. <laughs> um, and he had found here in Utah a company, Cyber Kinetics, that had invested $60 million into this really cool microelectro technology, had run for an FDA submission and done all sorts of things, but the VC had run out of funds now, wasn't going to support it anymore, and they were going to divest it. And he said, look, this is, this is good technology. I think there's a market where we could sell this as tools. And so we looked at it. We found it extremely valuable as a basis. And we decided to take that um, and uh, first become the prem, premier seller of tools and services and solutions to the neuroscience research community. Not a particularly big uh, market, but a bit of a niche market, but one that the, the product was already appealing to. And I knew we could execute on this and build an operations that would be profitable. And that's exactly what we did. It, it happened much faster than uh, uh, we had projected. And within uh, a couple of years, we were the, the, the market leader in providing um, tools and solutions to neuroscience researchers. And it's it's been the basis of everything we do now, to be honest, <laughs> because it allowed us to stand on our own two feet. We were generating cash. Uh, we were generating revenue. It has allowed us to endure years where there was no fundraising to be had. And uh, beyond that, what we hadn't thought of when we devised the plan, um, because I don't want to uh, uh, give the impression that we were clairvoyant and predicted all of this, we were exposed to a fascinating environment, that neuroscience research environment. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we have 500 customers worldwide now in that, in that environment. And every single one of them has challenged us, has given us ideas, has uh, helped us come to this point that we're at now. So uh, I don't think we could have predicted that, that it was a vague idea that we could keep our finger on the pulse of, of what kind of innovation might be happening in neuroscience that would then translate to neuroclinical applications. But uh, it, it, it was really, in the end, the, the secret to um, our, our success today, that creating that basis and understanding and knowledge uh, from that market. Yeah, I, I love, that's that's such a fascinating story. And so what, I, what I'm hearing is like you early on, you thought we needed to uh, we needed to drive revenue sooner rather than later. So you in essence became a service business, right? And use those you know re revenue to to fund other other initiatives. It reminds me of like um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Basecamp, which is a popular project management software. Like early on, and this is you know not too dissimilar to like other agencies that have done that. They, they started off as, as, as a, uh, a marketing agency, right? Doing a number of different things, built up their software to help manage their internal processes. And I'm like, we, we actually, we built the product that should be sellable here. You know what I mean? And so Basecamp, or I can't remember what, 37 Signals, I think was the name of the company at the time, pivoted into what is now Basecamp and, you know, extremely profitable business. Reminds me of that, that kind of story. But quick question, kind of going back to, you know, that 2007, eight, Time frame. Florian comes back to you within three days, which is which is incredible. <laughs> Says we've got this asset. Did you know? I mean, I, I'm always I'm always amazed at like the amount of capital that's poured into companies like that, right? And they they can't for whatever reason they're not they they've run out of they've run out of funds and they they don't they, they don't see a path forward. 
but in a different set of eyes, right? Your eyes, Lauren's eyes come in and say, wait, wait a second, we can just, we can, we can, we can pivot this and turn it around and, you know, in your case, reach, <laughs> reach profitability within a year. You know what I mean? So is that, is that just simply a matter of a function of, you know, your experience, your like entrepreneurial flair, kind of your, a different set of eyes seeing like what could be an awesome business and just flipping the switch, right? What was it about that, the company at the time that these, these, why didn't they do that? I guess is probably the, the, the well, short question. It, it, no, no, not not added flair or anything. A, a lot of the guys who were involved with cyberkinetics, super experienced and 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 uh, uh, really competent individuals, right? Mm-hmm. No, it was a different perspective on the the company vision. So mm-hmm. that company was driven by investors and VC investors who had to ac- ac- you know, were accountable to other things than than we who joined and said we're we're trying to achieve a different thing. They were heading out to create a BCI, an invasive BCI. They uh, got it FCA approved uh, for under 30 days. They got a patient in, Matt Nagel, who since unfortunately passed away. And it was the first patient who, with his thoughts alone, created an email and sent the email. I mean, (laughs) phenomenal kind of Apollo mission, a, a perspective, a window on what was possible, right? So very valuable. But they were a VC play in sort of the more traditional way of, this is going to go and become billions of dollars. Well, many other things weren't aligned that are in fact aligned today, but they weren't aligned back then. But that was their perspective. I don't think they had even the choice to think about this differently. Florian and I approached it from, well, we don't need to build that right now. Right now we're looking for an asset. We're looking for something that we can make into products and sell to a community the neuroscience research community, mm-hmm. right? We didn't have to account to a VC who wants to see a TAM of billions of dollars. That was not the ask. Our private investors who are family uh, businesses that have existed for up to 400 years, one of them is a German uh, a business that was created I don't know, 448 years ago or something crazy. These guys didn't need to hear TAM of a billion dollars. They needed to hear an execution plan and an operational plan. Hmm. And that's what we provided them, right? We said, look, this is a niche market. It's somewhere between 50 and 150 million. Uh, We weren't even very precise about it because there's no economic data about it. You kind of have to do a bit of guesswork. But we know we can sell this product. It's happened once, twice before. And now here's what we're going to do. And this is where we did deploy our experience, which was to say, look, we are going to start this in the US and we're going to sell. We know the market is X. We're going to get 10%, 15% market share. Then we move it to Europe. We understand Europe. Then we move it to Asia because research is starting to happen in Asia. We took an investor on, one of our private investors in Singapore. Both Florian and I had built businesses in Asia. So we knew those markets. We were not gun shy of them. And so we could map out an operational plan. It worked out way faster than we even thought. And we put in place the right operators to make it happen. And, you know, whatever, three, four years later, we were one of the top, and today we're the, the largest uh, tool and service pro- solution provider to that neuroscience research community. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that we were more qualified or anything, but I think it, the key thing was we had a different perspective and yeah. a different um, hmm. requirement. Yeah, no, that's such a great, that's such a great story. And, and uh, I, I, love, I love the fact that, you know, like a, a completely different model, right, than, than how most med tech uh, how most early stage medical technology or medical device companies operate. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure by embedding, you meant the next question I was going to follow up with was the community aspect, right? By embedding yourself in the neuroscience community, I would imagine the ideal, I, uh, let's call it idea flow, right. Was, was probably just constant, right. By, because you're having all these conversations with, you know, the, the, some of the most brilliant minds in the, in the world on niche neuroscience topics, you could be like, you could quickly figure out which ideas may maybe have some legs, which ideas aren't there. 
But talk, talk a little bit about that and how that maybe impacted, you know, that's, the, that's, yeah, the, the movie. Well, that's exactly it. And, and we had some sense of, of how that could work, but it was a very naive sense in retrospect. I was blown away by the shit genius of, of, of this community. Uh, and whether they were doing basic science where you think, okay, that's miles away from translation, all the way to more applied science, in all of those areas, there is great food for the next venture and for a successful business. And, and being in that space for over a decade taught us a, a fair few things, right? Of analyze these things, how to recognize whether they have a high or low TRL, um, what some of the risks are that you need to consider, um, how to say no. We were awful at saying no at first. We have become much better at saying no. Um, but uh, weighing those up and then working with them and recognizing uh, strengths and weaknesses, that has been uh, an enormous learning course. But we, we could not have forecast how much we were exposed to better understand what to do next. And even today, with our, our vision and mission of, of making people walk, talk here again, but also of addressing neurological disorders that over 600 million patients worldwide suffer from. As we navigate that path now and we say, look, we're going to, to do this product embodiment and application, understanding the application, seeing the potential of a technology and how it can be deployed there, we are faster than anybody else because we have this network and this community that we can draw on in this experience. And it's been phenomenal. I, and there are other examples of where this has happened. So maybe if we had been wiser and smarter at the outset, we would have, we would have already recognized the full capacity of it. I mean, Texas Instruments, you know, has played that game a little bit where they 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 went out and they provided their tools to a broad, broad range of, of students because they wanted those customers to be part of, of what they learn about the market and what they can then deliver as those students become scientists, become and move up the chain. So there have been examples of other companies benefiting. You mentioned, you know, Basecamp or whatever. There have been other examples. Uh, for us, it's been uh, yeah a, a major, if not the pillar of strength uh, that we base our business on today. Oh yeah, yeah, I can uh, I, I can imagine, and I'm, I'm part of an incubator um, called Big Sky Biomedical, and we uh, uh, one of our some of our partners are um, our uh, founders and principals at, at Switchback Medical, which is a, a, a contract manufacturer that specializes in interventional catheter development and, and manufacturing. But because they're in that that niche, right? Talking with you know interventionalists, whether they're from in the cardiology space or the radiology space or neuroradiology, et cetera, they see so, so many different ideas, right? It's just, it's continuous. And I, uh, I can't stress that enough. And it sounds like you've, uh, BlackRock has, has experienced that, you know, similar type, you've proven this out, right. By embedding yourself in that community, um, through a service-based business. I mean, it just, it helped, uh, you know, help lead, lead you, lead you, lead you to where uh, where the company's at today. So that, that's yeah. that, that's that's great to hear. And there's other benefits. I mean, today, you know, we are uh, the number one BCI player in the market, and uh, well, one of our competitors is a is a company funded by maybe the most well known billionaire uh, of disruptive technologies in the world, right? Somebody who's managed to shoot stuff into space <laughs> and uh, make cars drive without uh, without gas. And you'd think, whoa, no, they must be number one. Well, they're not. And why? And it's because of the community that you know we are we are in many ways a product of. So our BCI in many ways is the BCI of the research community. There is strong identification with what we do and how we've done it. Whereas there is uh, even a sort of borderline antagonistic uh, uh, approach from that community towards hmm. other uh, more commercial, you know, commercially minded endeavors and ventures. So I think being part of that community 
And, and having that strong identification it goes beyond and it, and it helps us on the branding side. As we are now growing, I mean, we've, we've gone from 50 people to 130 people in less than seven months. Uh, where do we recruit? And we have been able to get fantastic talent from that research community as well. And I'm just, it's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of, even our development today, that we can offer that neuroscience community alternative path, career paths as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, all these smart minds and brains can, of course, pursue the academic realm, but now also uh, a variety of medical device and, and, and private market endeavors. So for now, it's been a, a fantastic interplay and, and we have benefited hugely. Yeah, well, I, I want to move on and, and learn a little bit more about um, the move again technology specifically. But I didn't think this this conversation kind of unfold to talk this much about community. But I, I uh, there's a um, a guy that I follow on Twitter. I, I don't know him personally. Greg Eisenberg, I think, is his name, if I remember right. But um, I remember reading like a piece that he wrote on on the on the future of the future of work, and he and he mentioned that you know one of the one of the crucial roles for most uh, most companies is going to be this this concept of a chief community officer. Right. So someone that oversees and has like their their North Star metric is how is our company establishing and fostering relationships within our core, our core community. So interesting, interesting that, man, you were it seems like you were you, you guys have been on the leading edge of this since, you know, for the better part of 15, 15 years. So um, on that note, let's talk a little bit about move again. So FDA, you recently were granted, uh, you know, breakthrough device designation for 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 the movie move again concept. Talk to us a little bit about what it is specifically and then tell us a little bit more, more about how the idea kind of was generated and how it came to be. Yeah, so our vision has been for a while to make people move, talk, walk, uh, hear, and see again. Uh, and I know those are very very broad and, and very um, big objectives, but at the end of the day, the, the restoration of function is, is central and critical to what we want to be able to change and, and, and affect. And, uh, you know, why those... We'll move again because a lot of our research customers started working with paralyzed patients, tried to show how a BCI, a brain-computer interface with an electrode that would pick up signals from the brain, bring that data out, and could affect them in a positive way, either by restoring their function, so letting them, with their thoughts, move a prosthetic arm, uh, as is the case, for example, with Nathan Copeland, a BCI pioneer out out of Pittsburgh, um, left tetraplegic after a car accident, tragically at the age of 18. And he joins that research study and the guys are around him, uh, Jen Collinger and clinical side, Rob Gaunt on the research side, just fantastic work. And they're able to have Nathan Copeland move a prosthetic arm. He shakes. Uh, yeah, there's a video of him shaking Barack Obama's hands and fist bumping him. And they went that next step where after showing that and uh, also drawing on many others who had shown something similar, they put a, a, a sensor in that prosthetic hand. When he shakes Barack Obama's hands, he kind of says, oh, your, your, your hand is warm. And uh, Barack Obama re- replies quick-witted and he says, look, I'm a lot more nervous about meeting you than you are about meeting me. But what's happening here is the sensor is picking up the signal. The prosthetic hand has a sensor. The sensor picks up the signal and sends the signal back into Nathan's brain telling Nathan it's warm. I mean, just, just fantastic stuff. And very quickly then with all of these research institutes across the US starting to prove that you could restore a movement, also some research into how to restore communication. So people being able to communicate again uh, where they couldn't before. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. 
You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.